Good morning. As Gareth said, my name's Ollie. It's nice to be speaking to you this morning. Um, I guess some of you are wondering whether I'm up here yet again to talk about small groups, um, which is kind of the normal reason for me to be standing up here. Um, my wife and I helped to oversee small group life. And so many of you have heard me say uh, a number of times, I think, about the benefits of being in community. Um, and it's not just something that I say. Uh, I genuinely believe that. I feel really passionate that when Jesus saved me, when Jesus saved us, he saved us into loving community. He saved us with the intention being that we would run the race together. You can do the Christian race on your own, but not very well. It's really hard. We were created and we were saved to be in community with other people. The plan from the very beginning was that there will be people to encourage us and cheer us on, that when someone falls, there will be someone there to help them up. And that's what community is about. But you've heard me say that before, many of you. And you could probably have delivered that talk on my behalf. What you've perhaps heard me say less is some of the problems associated with being in community. Because being in community is not always easy, is it? The reality is that when we allow other people in, when we run closely with people, it isn't long before we realize that people are frustrating and they're disappointing at times and they're offensive sometimes and insensitive. If you're sat here this morning and you don't know what it feels like to be hurt or upset or even just a little bit annoyed by someone else in the church, then come see me afterwards and we'll get you involved in a small group and you will know sure enough. See, the fact is, uh, some people are in some not very good small groups by the sound of it. Um, the fact is that we weren't just called by Jesus to coexist together. With all of our beautiful and wonderful differences, we're not just called to rub along and tolerate one another. We're not even just called to get to the point of companionship and stop there. We were called into family. And in the context of family, we share what matters most. And that means that we allow people to see the things that we're worried about and scared about, the places in us that are hurting. And it also means that we allow people to see the things that we're excited about and joyful about and happy about. And the sharing of those things, man, it's beautiful. It's life-giving and inspiring, and it does us good, but it's risky. So if you know the things that really matter most to me, if you know what I'm passionate about and what's, or maybe what's hurting me at the moment, that puts you in a position to hurt me that you weren't in before. So if I know that you know what really matters to me and you still don't ask me about it, I can be quite offended by that. Or if you know that I've worked really, really hard on something and you don't appreciate it, I can feel undervalued. I know for me, one of the weaknesses that I have, um, and my wife will very happily testify to this if you don't believe me, is that there are occasions when people say things to me um, and they mean them really seriously. And this is something that, that really matters to them. And sometimes my response is to make silly little jokes about it. And I'm trying to get better at it, but I still get it wrong sometimes. I still judge the situation wrong. I don't know um, whether that's kind of some part of me that wants to be popular or what, but, um, but it's a weakness that I have. You have them as well, let's be honest. Let's not kid ourselves into thinking that we're always on the receiving end of offense and hurt. Sometimes we're the ones dishing it out. However it happens, it's not going to be long before somebody upsets you. And it won't just be in the church, of course. People outside the church are just as able to do that. 
Sometimes those wrongs look small from the outside. You might see a wrong being dished out and it doesn't look that big, but when it arrives, it hurts. Sometimes they look big from the outside and they feel even bigger on the inside. You know, in Scripture, we don't find a God who doesn't get it. We find a God who has first-hand experience and knowledge and understanding of our pains, of our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to suffer disappointment. He knows what it's like to experience loss. He knows what it's like to be insulted. He knows what it's like to be abused. Scripture doesn't say, just get on with it. You need to toughen up because your hurt doesn't really matter. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says God gets it. He knows what it's like. So here's the question then. When people offend us, when they hurt us, how do we respond? What do we do next? It can feel incredibly natural in those moments to start racking up a list in your mind of the wrongs that have been done to you. So somebody has, they've said this to me. I'm going to write that in the list. That person over there didn't ask me about that thing. I'm going to put that in the list. That person there organized something and didn't involve me. Put that in the list. That person there talked about me behind my back. And when I found out about it, oh, that hurt. I'm going to write that in the list. There are people in this room, no doubt, where the entries in your list don't look like neatly typed entries in a bank ledger. They look like scrawled scars across your heart, such as the pain. It's not long before we end up walking around with this list in our minds and written on our hearts. They kind of become part of who we are. Sometimes we're just, aw- we're just un- unaware that they're there, but they are. And then there are other times when they rise up and we're conscious of the presence of this list of wrongs that we're walking around with. And we carry those things with us everywhere we go. Catherine and I were part of a church a a few years ago where the elders recognized that this was kind of a problem for several people in the community. And we had a series of sermons um, about forgiveness um, and a lot was was said about it. And one of the things, um, one of the phrases that came up a lot was um, this idea that people, when they'd been wronged, could then carry that offense around with them. Carrying offense. (laughs) I'm allowed a dad joke because it's Father's Day. Now, at the time, thank you, um, at the time, Catherine and I thought we were hilarious. We'd come out of church every Sunday and make jokes about carrying fences, um, and we thought we were great. But the more we thought about it, the more this analogy started to kind of strike us as being quite significant. See, the reality is, if you try and live your life like this, there may be moments where you kind of forget it's there. There will be times when this becomes normal, when this is what your life just feels like. But it's always there and it gets in the way of everything. It makes everything more difficult. It colors what you're doing. Now, this is the smallest fence I could find. It's an offcut from a little picket fence I built in my front garden, uh, complete with cobwebs from my garage. Um, even though it's the smallest fence I could find, I'm still finding it really annoying. So if I were to carry this for very much longer, I'd find that bits of me were starting to ache in weird ways because it's twisting up the way that I stand. And so it is as we carry this offense round with us, if we hold on to this list of things, it's not long before our souls get embittered and twisted by having to hide them from people because we're ashamed of it or by having to just lug this weight round with us all the time. We don't really experience freedom until we put this thing down, but putting it down is harder than it sounds. 
because the reason I've got this is that someone wrongs me. And I don't want to put this down because it makes me feel like I'm letting them off and they don't deserve to be let off. I want to hold on to this thing because it reminds me that they were wrong, that they owe me something. I need to learn to put it down, but it's hard. And so there's the killer question really for this morning. How do we forgive? How do we put these offenses down? How do we live free of the bitterness that can rise in us as we hold on to these things? And perhaps as importantly, why do we do that? What's the benefit of that? It's easier to put that down. The um, model that Jesus gave is a model of uh, a man who built around himself a community, a community that he shared everything with. Um, And we're going to look this morning at a couple of verses from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus is beginning to teach this group of guys the way he wants them to live. So he gathered them together, and he said in Matthew 5, verse 7, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy to people who don't really deserve it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who don't allow bitterness to twist them up inside. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who will put peace before their own rights. And then skip forward to verse 40. If anyone wants to take your shirt from them, give them your coat as well. Verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then on to chapter 6, verse 14, forgive other people when they sin against you. This is the way of life that Jesus taught his followers. And it is radical. It is dramatic and challenging and incredibly costly. It's a way of life that says, when people persecute me, I'm going to respond by praying for them. When people love me and set themselves up as my enemy, I'm going to respond by loving them. If somebody tries to take something from me, I'm going to give them more than they tried to take in the first place. Now, the more you think about that, the more demanding it sounds. It's costly, this. And I don't know about you, but when I read these verses and others like it, a question kind of jumps to my mind. Maybe the same question came to your mind. The question is, does Jesus really want me to just keep giving and giving and giving? Am I not going to get to the point where there's nothing left and all I've done is given away all of me? Is that really the life Jesus wants for me? And I don't think I'm the only person to ever ask that question because Peter asked the same thing. So if we skip forward to chapter 18... This is the main passage we're going to look at this morning. So open your Bibles. It will appear behind me as well. Um, Peter came to Jesus, and Jesus had been teaching this way of life, this way of life that is giving, that forgives, that is the way of life of a peacemaker, of someone who's pure in heart. And Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? We have to kind of just pause there and understand Peter's question. So this is coming from a place that says, I've got it. I I understand what you're asking me. You're asking me to give. You're asking me to be a peacemaker at personal expense. But when is enough enough? At what point do I draw the line and say, no, I've given enough now and I'm not going to keep doing it? Now, to understand Peter's opening offer of seven times, we also need to see that there was a kind of gold standard in the culture at the time. The religious leaders have set up a gold standard that said, you forgive people three times and then you're out. Right? And that was based on an interpretation of Amos chapter 1. Feel free this afternoon to go and have a look through that um, and see if you agree. But the religious leaders at the time had interpreted Amos chapter 1 as meaning that God forgives three times, but no more than that. Right? I don't actually think that's what Amos chapter 1 says, but feel free to go and read it for yourself. 
Peter had therefore come to Jesus and said, look, the gold standard of the religious leaders right now is that if someone, forgive, if someone sins against me once, I forgive. If they do the same thing again, I forgive. If they do the same thing a third time, I forgive. On the fourth time, they're on their own, right? Because I don't have to be more generous in forgiveness than God is. So when he then came and said, how about seven times? How about if I take the gold standard of today, double it and add one? How's that? I wonder if Peter was expecting Jesus to go, yeah, you've got it. Well done, son. You've understood what I've been saying to you. Well, unfortunately, that is not what Peter gets. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or depending on which original version you're looking at, maybe 70 times seven. The point is the same. Jesus was turning this question completely upside down. He was saying, I don't want you to ask when is enough enough. I don't want you to count. I want you to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. I want you to totally change your mindset on what it means to be generous. And I imagine that in that moment, the disciples' jaws dropped a little bit at the challenge of what they were being told. And Jesus saw that, I think, because he went on to tell them a little story to try and illustrate how this works. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That was the king's right to do that. At this, a servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Now, this is a moment of Jesus kind of expressing a little bit of humour in this story. And to get that, you have to understand that 10,000 bags of gold is a lot of money. Right, this guy was a servant, a hired hand, so he was earning the equivalent of minimum wage. And therefore, you can do a pretty straightforward calculation and work out that 10,000 bags of gold is 200,000 years worth of this guy's salary. Right, this is hundreds of millions of pounds. It is an absolutely ridiculous quantity of money. This guy is in debt to, I don't know how he got himself in this debt, by the way, but he is in debt to a hopeless extent. So when he falls on his knees before his master and says, give me a bit longer and I'll pay you back, the master is looking at him saying, no, you won't. You haven't got enough life left to pay me back. There's no way you could ever pay me back. The parallels here are pretty obvious, but we're going to spell them out anyway because it matters to us this. We have a father in heaven who loves us, who our souls were created to be in relationship with. He's the only one who can give us what we need. He's the only one who can satisfy. Until we are in relationship with him, we will be lost. Our souls will be orphans without a father. And yet he is pure and he is holy and he can't have sin in his presence. And every time we've rebelled against him, everything we've ever done wrong, everything we've ever done that says, I don't want to rate you as God in this moment, everything pushes him further away. And it's like we owe him a bigger and bigger and bigger debt until we get ourselves in not that many years to the point that this guy got himself to here. The point where we are hopelessly in debt. Where if I give everything I have to the poor, where if I never raise my voice to my kids ever again, where if I live every day of my life giving to charity and volunteering, where if I honour him in everything I have, I still won't be able to pay back the debt I owe him. That is the hopeless situation I find myself in. It's the situation that this guy lived with, this servant who lived knowing this debt is hanging over me 
and there is no way that I will ever pay it back. Imagine living like that. So when the king cancelled his debt, the parallel for us is that that's what Jesus did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus stretched his arms out and just like the king giving up what was rightfully his, these hundreds of millions of pounds, this 200,000 years worth of salary, it was massively costly for the king. And so it was with Jesus, it cost him everything to cancel your debt and to cancel my debt. I walked into that place crippled by a debt I could never pay back. And he gave me total freedom. And it cost him everything. How's that feel? How would that have felt for the guy in this story to walk out of the audience with the king knowing that his debt was cancelled? <laughs> well, let's see what he did with his freedom, shall we? But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. He owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me. I will pay it back. You recognize those words? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Now, there are some of Jesus' parables which are quite complicated. Um, and there's kind of layers of analogy, and it takes a little while to work it out. In fact, in some cases, Jesus even had to explain what he was on about to his disciples. This isn't really one of those parables. In fact, um, several people have said this is probably the simplest parable in the Gospels. It's really obvious what he's saying. Let's say it anyway. When I hold on to this, if I refuse to forgive somebody who has wronged me, I am being that servant in that story. Having had this eternal debt cancelled over me, I then refuse to cancel someone else's debt. See, Christian forgiveness is willingly and deliberately cancelling a debt that is rightly owed to me because I recognise that a much, much bigger debt was already cancelled for me. Christian forgiveness is not giving someone what they deserve. It's giving someone something they don't deserve. The debt is rightly owed. It still hurts, actually. But because a much bigger debt was cancelled for me, I'm going to cancel that debt for someone else. It's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And this doesn't belittle the hurt that was done. See, in the story here, this second servant owes this guy, uh, what is that, 100 silver coins. That's quite a lot of money, actually. It's something like a, somewhere between a third and a quarter of a year's worth of um, salary. It's a few thousand pounds, probably. It's going to hurt. They're going to miss that. But it's not going to be as bad as not doing it. Listen to this terrible warning from Jesus at the end. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. It'd be nice to stop here, but we're going to read this next verse. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, I can't in any kind of conscience stand up here and talk about forgiveness from Scripture without reading that verse. And in case you're wondering whether this is a kind of one-off, if we skip back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15 goes like this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. 
It'd be great if there was some way that you could use the original language to talk your way out of this. It'd be great if you could interpret this in a way that was easier to stomach, but there isn't one. In plain text, Jesus said, if you can't forgive, I can't forgive. Fact is this, our ability to forgive other people is a very clear indication of what's going on inside. It's a suggestion, if I can forgive you, what it says is that I've understood that he's forgiven me. I've grasped it. I've accepted it for myself. It's such a clear indication, in fact, of whether I've accepted his forgiveness of me that Jesus says there's a one-to-one correlation here between you forgiving and you remaining under my forgiveness. And believe me, being outside of his forgiveness is not a place we want to be. So we've got to take this stuff seriously. This really matters. It's about our understanding of what he's done for us. It's an indicator. See, really, it's about how wealthy I consider myself spiritually. If I still think that that massive debt is hanging over me, if I still live like that massive debt is hanging over me, I cannot afford to cancel your debt that you owe to me. I'm not wealthy enough to do that. I need that. But if I've understood, no, I've been forgiven. That debt is cancelled and gone permanently. If I understand that, then I'm spiritually wealthy. I can afford to cancel your debt. It won't be easy, though. It's really difficult. Perhaps that's part of what Jesus meant when he said, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. I want your life to be laid out the way that mine was. Now, there's this... um, little section of verses in 2 Corinthians that we often use to try to encourage one another. But actually, when you think about it, it's really demanding this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 14. For Christ's love, the love of Jesus himself, who on the cross gave everything to cancel my debt. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, the Lord Jesus himself, died for all. And therefore, all died. Something of me died in that moment too. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We're not picking this thing up. We're not walking around with a list in our minds. This person did that. That person did that. That person owes me that. We're not walking around regarding people from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. It's dead. And the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation so that we could offer it to others. See, to understand this, we need to understand that there was an old me. There was a me before the one that is here now. And the old me, the old me was spiritually indebted. The old me was in poverty. The old me, therefore, recognized that it needed to protect myself. Old me lived for me. Old me was self-obsessed, self-dependent, self-protective. Old me couldn't afford to give. So old me held grudges easily. Old me took offense quickly. Old me kept a record of wrongs. Old me was trying to be the master, the captain of the ship. Right? That's, that's the position that old me was trying to hold itself in. But the Bible says that old me is dead. See, here's the deal. Jesus says to you, that debt hanging over you, I will cancel it. And what it's going to cost you is that your life right now that looks after you, that's got to die. 
That's, that's, the, that's the, the deal. And there will be a new life for you. New life is free. New life is spiritually rich. New life doesn't live for me anymore. New life lives for him. Therefore, new life can afford to give. New life can forgive those against, who sin against me, however much it costs. New life recognises that however much it hurts and however much it costs to put that thing down, it hurt Jesus and it cost Jesus more. New life operates from that place. And the problem with the Christian walk is this. Sometimes I look back at old me, the corpse of old me lying down there, and I remember what it was like to live for me. Remember what it was like to look after myself. And I try to kind of climb back into that skin. It doesn't fit anymore. That's not me anymore. The role of the believer is to let that old me be dead. I'm not trying to live for me. I'm trying to live for him. And that means operating from a place of spiritual wealth, knowing that he has cancelled all of my debt. All of it. See, Christian forgiveness is not a thing that we muster up inside ourselves. It's not a thing that we think, okay, Jesus says I've got to do it, so I've got to do it. It's also not a thing of, okay, that person wronged me, but it wasn't that bad, and they've said sorry, so they deserve to have me forgive them. That's not what it is either. Because the Bible isn't about belittling our pain, and it isn't about saying we forgive because the person deserves it. Christian forgiveness is about saying, as an act of worship to the king, I recognize that you have given me everything, and therefore, I'm in a position to give it away. And that's really, really hard. It's really hard. And when it hurts, and when it's hard, the place we should be looking is not at the pain, and it's not at the person who wronged us, it's at the loving face of Jesus, who welcomes us in and says, I've got you now. I've covered your debt. You have everything you need. You're safe, you're loved. Those things that were done against you, I know. I know about them. I know how much they hurt. I know how wrong it was. I'm just, and there will be a consequence for those things. But what I want from you, says Jesus, is to look at my face and know how much I love you and know how much I've given you. And then I want you to be a conduit for that. I want you to love others, whether they deserve it or mostly when they don't. It's a place of worship. And that's what we're going to do. So will you stand with me? Why don't you close your eyes now and look again in your mind at the cross. Look at what he did for you. Look how much it cost him to cancel your debt, to set you free. He had everything and he gave everything out of love for you. And we're welcomed into that place of love. This is a chance, by the way, if, you, if you've never stepped into that, if you've never accepted that from him, then this morning there's an offer. Will you come and let that poverty drop off you? Will you come and allow me, says Jesus, to cancel your debt? And if you know him, Let's just take this moment to remind ourselves of what he's done. Maybe you want to start speaking 
speaking out some words of thanks and praise. Jesus, thank you that you canceled my debt. That you took me from hopelessness to hope. That you took me from spiritual death to life. I went from absolute poverty to the spiritual wealth of being your adopted son. Thank you, Jesus. And having recognized the, the magnificent, the almost indescribable goodness of what Jesus has done for us, the response from our hearts is to lay ourselves down and say, everything I have comes from you. It's all owed to you. You are worthy, Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to go back to that song that we sang earlier um, as, a, as a, a way of expressing back to him that he's worthy and we want to surrender to him. I, you, this is not a command, by the way, but, but some of you might want to get out from your rows and find enough space that you can kneel. If you feel like you want to do that, then, then do there's loads of space around. Let's, let's respond to this. <laughs>